Heavenly Father, please transform our lives today as we listen to your words. Please help us to um, hear your voice. Please open our ears and let us respond to what you have to say to us today. Amen. Last year, I met this guy from a large church down in Canberra, and things were going pretty well in his church. He had a few hundred people attending each Sunday, but at the end of the year, he was going to resign. He'd he'd developed this heart, sort of like Joel had a heart for China, he'd developed a heart for the Northern Territory, and so he was going to um, resign and move up to the Northern Territory, and he was going to plant a church up there. And so he was telling me about this and how it was going to be a huge commitment for him. He had to sell a lot of his stuff that he owned in his house at a garage sale and he had the rest of it shipped up to the Northern Territory. And so all his stuff was up in the Northern Territory and he was just tying up a few loose ends in Canberra. He was at a Bible study just a few weeks before he was going to go. And he started coughing, and he got dizzy, and they thought he was having a heart attack. He went to hospital, and they found out he had lung cancer. And so he's currently undergoing treatment for this. He's taking drugs for the cancer, and then he's taking more drugs to sort of counteract the side effects that the other drugs were having on him. But it means that this trip... This um, trip to the Northern Territory, it's been put on hold and it may never happen. How do you respond to such suffering? What would you say to this minister about his situation? It's hard to imagine why God would allow such a thing to happen, isn't it? Especially to such a mature and godly pastor. Well, James has a lot to tell us about trials. And the first thing he has to say to us is in verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Could you imagine how this minister with lung cancer would feel if you went up to him and said, Consider this pure joy. Consider it pure joy that you have lung cancer. Doesn't sound, sound nice at all, does it? It sounds harsh. It sounds harsh because we feel that cancer is wrong. It's painful. And trials often are. Trials in general often make our lives hard and miserable. It might be illness or injuries or allergies or it might be difficulty getting a job. It could be that you're discriminated against for being a Christian. Or even you could find individuals a trial in your life. But James is trying to show you that trials should be a joy. And there are two good reasons for this. The first one is, is because trials lead to perseverance. Did you see how verse 3, have a look in your Bibles, how verse 3 is worded? The way it's worded, it sort of shows that trials result in perseverance. These trials are good because it helps you persevere as a Christian. Often in the Old Testament, God would bring trials upon his people in Israel. This was because God wanted them to persevere. 
He wanted them to keep their relationship with God. So he'd cause them suffering so that they would call out to him and talk to him and they would return to him. And a clear example of this is in the book of Judges. If you've ever read Judges, the whole book is full of this cycle where Israel, they rebel against God. They don't do what God wants. So what God does is he sends a trial to them. So there's this army or other nation, they come and they oppress Israel and afflict them. And so Israel is suffering, they're under trials. They call out to God. And then God sends some kind of judge to save them. So these trials, they actually act as a good thing for Israel because they turn back to God and they end up in right relationship with God as a result. In the New Testament, there's a similar idea. And so I want you to actually have a look at this. It's in Hebrews 12:7. So have a look at this passage. I think it's amazing the number of parallels in this passage to our passage today. But in verse 7, it says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? Okay, so endure hardship as discipline. Then in verse 10 we read, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. So this passage as well, it considers trials as a good thing from God. And they are good because they keep you on track. They remind you that you need to rely on God and not to forget about him. So when you receive trials, it's something you should rejoice about. You rejoice because they strengthen your relationship with God. It's like the bumps on the side of the freeway. Have you ever seen those bumps on the side of the freeway? You, um, they're those lines that they, um, when you run over them, your car goes bump, 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 bump. Okay, and so the idea of them is they wake you up. They keep you on track. They make sure you don't run off and hurt yourself. So if you've ever gone to sleep with those bumps and woken up, you'd be thankful that those bumps are there. You'd be saying, thank you. I love those bumps. Same thing with trials, isn't it? We should be saying, thank you for those trials. The second reason you should rejoice in trials is because they lead to perfection. Back in James chapter 1, verse 4, we see there's sort of a chain of events that happen. Your trials lead to perseverance, which then leads you to become mature and complete, not lacking anything. The idea of being complete and not lacking anything, this is the idea of being perfect. It means there's no blemishes or no faults. And the more you persevere, the more these blemishes are removed. It's not that we ever reach perfection, but this is the direction the Christian life heads. Perfection is about living the life that God wants you to live. So when you suffer in tr- with trials, you should rejoice, firstly because it helps, with, helps us with, with our perseverance, but secondly because it helps us and leads us and guides us to perfection. But sometimes we just can't understand why we suffer. We can't see any particular sin in our life and we can't, um, cannot see any flaw in our relationship with God. We think things are going alright. 
especially if that guy that had lung cancer, he was a mature and godly pastor. And sometimes it just seems confusing. Why has God allowed this to happen? Can't God see that that minister, he was going to do great things in the Northern Territory? I think sometimes for me, when I'm sick, I'm tempted to think, why God, why have you made me sick? Can't you see I'm training to be a minister? Can't you see all the good things that I can do? Can't you see that this isn't good for the kingdom? And I start to question God's wisdom. But what protects us in trials is wisdom. Wisdom is our friend. It helps us live our Christian lives. It helps us respond correctly in difficult situations. Wisdom is something that helps us persevere. It's not often linked to trials, but more to living the good life and good deeds. We'll see this later on in James 3.13. And if you look at it, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Wisdom leads to a good life and deeds. Out of wisdom flows a lifestyle. You can be smart, you can have knowledge, but you can be stupid at the same time. There's a lot of smart people that do a lot of stupid things. And this is because knowledge doesn't lead you to good decisions. What you need is wisdom. Wisdom is how you put this knowledge that you have into practice. The Bible speaks a lot about wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, I'm just going to read a few out quickly. You might recognise a few. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men. Wisdom will save you from the adulterous woman. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord. Know also that wisdom is like honey for you. If you find it, there is a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. I hope you can see why wisdom is so important when it comes to trials. Wisdom helps you stay on that right path so you do not waver. Wisdom prevents you from being tempted by wicked men and the adulteress. It starts with the fear of God and takes you to future hope. Wisdom protects you in trials. The opposite of wisdom, it's the person who lacks judgment. When trials come, they fall. They fall because they fail to understand why they are suffering. And they fall because they fail to respond correctly in the face of trials. But the wonderful thing is, when we consider God, God is a generous God, and God wants us to persevere under trials. You can ask him, and he will give you the wisdom you need in order to persevere. But how do we ask God for wisdom? In verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, we are told to ask him without doubting. But what does this mean? Is there some way we can believe more or trust more when we pray? It's tricky because we, I feel like I'm not in control of my doubts and my beliefs. So how do we ask without doubting, especially if the trial we're going through is doubt? If we're doubting, with, if we're, we're struggling with doubt, 
and we want to ask God for wisdom, is God going to answer our prayer? We need to read verse 6 and verse 8 together to understand what it means by doubt. If we look at verse 8, we see that this man, his doubt flows over all he does. It's not just an intellectual doubt. It's a doubt in his conflicts between loyalties between God and the world or other gods. Doubt is closely linked to the idea of judging or disputing. To doubt is to consider other options other than God. It might be that you just want to keep your options open. It might be that you want many gods. This is sort of what the Hindus want to do. They want to have many gods. But then, you know, us Australians aren't that different either. As a general Australian culture, we say, well, whatever works for you. It might be that we just think we can do it on our own. I don't need God. Or maybe I'll just pray just in case God exists. When you pray, you need to realise that God is the only solution. Without God, you're helpless. Other gods won't help. Other religions won't help. This world's wisdom won't help. You need to look to God for wisdom concerning your suffering. And God will give it to you. And this is because God is a generous God. But we need to watch out for worldly wisdom. There are a number of things that worldly wisdom teaches. It teaches us that, you might have heard a few of these things, you need to do well at school. School matters so that you can do tertiary education, you can go to uni or TAFE and get a good stable job. And then once you've got that job, you've got to go and purchase a house. And then if you end up getting a wife, you've got to pay the mortgage off before you have kids. After all, you couldn't possibly bring up kids when you're struggling financially, could you? And also, before you have kids, why not go on an expensive holiday somewhere overseas? Because once you've got kids, you won't be able to afford it. And then if you're willing, try and put a bit of money on the stock market and you'll see that your money works for you. And make sure your super fund is also working for you because you'll need all this money when you retire. When you retire, you'll be able to travel the world. You'll be able to buy a big caravan and travel around Australia. You'll be able to buy that house on the beach right next to the golf club. This is the wisdom of the world. It sounds attractive, doesn't it? It's about protecting yourself from hardship. About protecting yourself from trials. I've got friends at Bible College who are thought to be unwise by their families. Their families can't believe they would trade in a secure job which would set them up for life. They can't believe they'll trade it in for some kind of unknown job which doesn't pay well. It may not even pay at all. Even Christian parents get a little bit confused at this point. They want their children to have security that a well-paid job can offer. They've looked to the wisdom of the world. And well, money can offer a certain degree of protection, can't it? It may even protect you from some trials. But there's reason why money can't protect you. Have a look in verse 11. It's the rich that fade away, even while they go about their business. 
If you die as you're going about your business, it seems like your business isn't complete. You have unfinished business. And this is right because the goal of your life is not to die as you go about your business. In verse 12, if you look on, the goal is to receive the crown of life. This crown of life, it's the victor's crown. It's the kind, it's the kind of crown that you receive when you, you, you finish the race. It's at the end of the race. The rich die as they're going about. They never reach that finish line. They never receive the prize. It makes their life seem pretty meaningless. Don't look to the rich for wisdom. Verse 10 says, They are not in a high position, but a low position. Verse 9 says, It's a humble brother who takes a high position. And in verse 12, It is the brother who perseveres, who receives the crown of life. So persevere. Finish the race. Receive the crown. Why are you a Christian? Isn't it because of this crown of life? Money's not going to help you stay a Christian. Money's not going to help you through trials. What's going to help you is keeping your eyes on that crown of life. You should want it so bad that you'd do anything to get it. Keeping your eyes on the crown of life will protect you in trials. It's going to help you persevere. Trials are hard, but they're good. That's what the Bible says, and we need to persevere. But you might think, isn't there an easier way? I think us humans, we're quite easy at finding easier ways. Instead of taking responsibility on ourselves, we like to pass it on to someone else. We like to say, that's not my job, that's not my problem, that's not my fault. Well, he made me do it. I had no choice. Our world even blames God for their own actions. They say, God made me like this. Or even I was born this way. When someone claims that they were born this way, they're trying to put the blame on God and remove their own responsibility. They want to believe that they are some kind of special case, that they should get some kind of special consideration. They make themselves out to be the victim. When we face a trial, how do we respond? Do we think about who we can blame? Or who is responsible for me failing? Are we just a poor, innocent victim? Verse 13 says we cannot blame God for tempting us. Verse 14 shows us where the responsibility lies. It lies with us. The responsibility is not on God, but on us. You need to take responsibility for your own evil desires. You can't blame God. You can't blame anyone else. You are responsible. And so you have to persevere against these evil desires. And this is hard work. The reason why you must claim responsibility... There's a reason why you must claim responsibility. If you look in verse 14 and 15, you see how sin grows... It's given this kind of birth language. Our desires lead to the birth of sin. And sin grows until it's an adult, until it's fully grown. Then sin leads to death. 
Sin's a nasty creature to grow. It'll kill you. So this is why. Take responsibility for your sin. And you need to do it now before it grows and kills you. It's interesting that if we sin, we are blamed for it. We're held responsible for it. But if we turn from our sin, then God is given praise. Might seem unfair, but this is because the turning of our sin requires God's work. In our natural state, we're children of desire and sin, which give birth to death. But God gives us a different kind of birth, and we see it in verse 18. We're given to a kind of birth that is, means that we're the first fruit of his new creation. We're a part of the new creation. He makes us new. We're no longer children of desire and sin. Did you notice how God makes this radical transformation? In verse 18, this birth is through the word of truth. This word of truth teaches us that you are born sinful in rebellion against God and that you need to take responsibility for your sin. You either take the punishment yourself or you let Jesus, God's king, take it for you. If you treat Jesus as king and believe he took your punishment at the cross, it is so. Your sin and rebellion have been dealt with. When you first accept this truth, you are said to become born again. You are a new creation. You are no longer a child of desire and sin, but a child born of the age to come. Thinking about this passage in James this morning, you can see it like a journey. It's a journey to the crown of life. The journey starts when you become a Christian. And on this journey there's many trials designed to keep you on the path. It's wise to ask God for wisdom as you travel along this path. On this path you may come across wealth and worldly wisdom, but you must not listen to it. On this path you may come across an easier way by shifting the blame. Again, you must not listen. Your eyes must stay firmly on that prize. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us keep our eyes on the prize. Please help the crown of life to be our greatest desire, more than anything else. Please help us not to look elsewhere, to the world or to religions or to money. Please help us to know how to respond in trials. Please give us the wisdom for that. As we ask you to help us to persevere, we know that this will be hard. Please give us the trials we need to persevere and to be thankful for when they arrive. Amen.